1790, the Danbury Association of Baptists was established in Connecticut. And at some point, the Danbury Association of Baptists wrote a letter to one Thomas Jefferson for clarification on the issue of religious freedom. At issue was that Connecticut had, by law, an established state religion, having been founded by Protestant Calvinists. So the Danbury Association of Baptists wrote, Whatever religious privileges we enjoy, we enjoy as favors granted and not as inalienable rights. In other words, their religious freedom was being infringed upon, and so they wrote to, of all people, Thomas Jefferson asking for help. So, Mr. Jefferson wrote a letter in return. In it, we read what is now a well-known and oft-quoted, and I would argue often misunderstood, passage. Jefferson writes, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an infringement, an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Thus, building a wall of separation between church and state. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. The state of Connecticut didn't drop its state religion until 1818. This means for almost 30 years, for at least 30 years, these Baptists lived within the tension of living under a government that prescribed a certain sect of Christian faith and practice while being granted certain freedoms. And it was under the umbrella of abiding by the rules of a government that was linked to a different religious perspective than their own. Now, it's, it's interesting because today we talk about Protestant religions and we talk about Calvinists and Protestants, uh, Calvinists and Baptists and, and Methodists, and we have different churches on different corners all over Seymour, and, and actually we'll do things together. But there was a time when Baptists in particular were often persecuted because we believed in baptism by immersion and because we would, in fact, rebaptize people. You do realize that our, our name of Baptists was actually a pejorative at one point in time, meaning it was given as a negative, that we felt that baptism didn't work the first time, so we had to do it again. I'll be honest, that I, I've talked with enough of us to know that that is true, that sometimes we do need an extra dip or two to, to make sure that our heads are on straight. I know that I could use one every now and again. Need a reminder. But there was a time where people, Baptists, were even, not, not just persecuted for that, but 
hunted down for it. Now, maybe not in this case, but they were, in fact, jailed for, for violating the state religions. What a difficult position to be in. To be trying to, to, to have to live in the tension of living according to one's biblical convictions, but, but having to do so in ways that demonstrate a submission to and respect for and honor towards governmental leaders and officials and structures that do not align with your own. i got to be honest with you. This is the second time I've done this to myself in this series where I gave a great passage to someone else and then I came back and had to preach one that I would rather not do. Gave Nathan, Pastor Nathan, Romans chapter 8. We're more than conquerors. Woo! Neither height nor depth nor anything can separate us from the love of God. And I get to come and say, but God only loves some of us, or does he? Then I give Michaela last week that, that we're to be living sacrifices and that our lives are a worship song to the Lord. Awesome message. She did a great job. And then this week I've got to come in with, you got to respect governmental officials. Anyone else would like to preach this passage tonight, I will give you my notes and I will happily walk off the stage today. No takers? I was serious. <laughs> the Apostle Paul and I, the Apostle Paul and I are not friends today. Regardless of political affiliation or preference, there is no time in history when what we're about to talk about would be popular. Where it would be easily received, I think. But it is the word of God, and so we will preach it nonetheless. Paul's going to tell us some very difficult things about how we are to relate to our government and the officials thereof. And how we should treat the individuals that, and how we should not just treat, but how we should perceive the individuals that have been placed in power. With that being said, we're going to do something that's a little bit different for us here at First Baptist Church, uh, but we're going, I'm going to read the passage of Scripture for this morning, and then I'm going to state the Word of God for the people of God. And if you agree that these words, as difficult as they might be, are the Word of God, I want you to agree by saying, Amen. Doesn't mean you're going to necessarily agree with everything I say, but it does mean that what it does mean is this, that you are going to be willing to give me a hearing this morning and deal with the same difficult passage that I've had to languish over for the last seven days. All right, do we understand? Okay, thank you, I appreciate that. Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, and it says this, Paul's going to come out with a bang, I'm warning you. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers Hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. 
They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also what, why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others have fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. The word of God for the people of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we dissect this. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. And I thank you for the truth of your word, Lord, even when I don't like it. I thank you for... The fact that it is good for me and for us, even when I may disagree. And God, I pray that you would this morning, in a very clear and special way, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive. God, this is a difficult word, and I pray that you would help us to digest it, and to handle it appropriately with humility and with grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul comes out with a bang, doesn't he? He doesn't doesn't wait as he's coming into this week. There's, There's no way to get around it. And he starts off with this statement that we are to all be subject to governing authorities because all governing authorities are established by God. All governing authorities are established by God. Now, who is Paul talking about? we got to ask that because Paul is is writing this letter uh, that's now in the Bible, and and we like to think of it as uh, there's different different thoughts about to whom these different passages apply. So what does Paul mean when Paul says everyone? You know, we've talked about this in previous passages. Does Paul mean everyone about a certain sect, right? Paul is, Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, and he is writing this, this letter to, to presumably Roman Christians. So is this just everyone, everyone in this church? Or, or is, is it everyone that, that it's everyone in Rome? Or is it 
everyone in all times in all places. Well, this is one of those, those times where Paul disambiguates and there's, there's no room for confusion because everyone in this sense means, wait for it, everyone. Why do I say that? Well, Paul, the word that Paul uses here for everyone has the broadest possible scope. The word literally translated means soul. Let every soul be subject to governing officials. Like every soul that, that has ever been born needs to be subject or ever will be born is going to have to be subject to the governing officials of that time. Now it does, though, for us as Christians carry extra weight because it is written under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit with apostolic authority through the Apostle Paul. Every soul has to deal with the difficulty and the discomfort at times of learning and living in their role, in their position under God and the authorities that he establishes. This is something that we have to deal with. There has never been and will never be and is not now anyone in a position of authority that God did not allow or establish in that position. No one. Allow me to make it more specific and just go ahead and get the offensiveness out of the way. President Joseph Biden is in office because God allowed it and established him in that office. We don't have to like that. We don't have to agree with that. But our American Constitution does not, doesn't, does not supersede God's established word and what God is doing. I don't understand all the purposes behind it. We can go back through history. There's a lot. You, you may not like this either, but there have been a lot of leaders in history that have been a lot worse than the ones we've got right now. But the passage tells us that even those were established by God. Paul uses two different words for authority in this passage. The two words are excusius and archon. Excusius and archon. The second word is archon. That, that, that refers to the Roman government at the time. And it was a very specific word that, that was used about an oppressive government over Jewish and Christian peoples. It was specifically referring to the Roman overlords. It wasn't, it wasn't a popular word. But the first word, excusius, is actually a general term for people who have power over others. And this is actually the passage that Paul uses throughout the text. So we can't just say, well, Paul is, Paul is just talking about the Roman officials and the Roman authorities. Paul is talking about all governments at all times through all of history. And did you notice that Paul doubles down on his statement? It's not that Paul says it and then just moves on into the rest of the, the, the discourse. Paul says twice in verse 1, it's redundant. Paul says, let everyone be subject to governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except that which God has established. And then he says again, the authorities that exist have been established by God. There is no authority that God has not put in place for God's purposes. We see Jesus himself agreeing with that. 
You know, it would be easy for us to look at this and say, well, that's true only when it's positive. But do you remember what happened when Jesus was standing before Pilate? Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate is rendering judgment, and, and he's talking to Jesus and says, hey, these are, the, these are the charges, Jesus. This is what's going on. Like, what do you have to say for yourself? And Jesus remains silent. He offers no defense. And Pilate says to him, don't you know that I have the authority, I have the power to either let you go and give you life or to send you to your death? Don't you know that I have this power? And Jesus, being Jesus, finally decides that this is when he's going to stand up and talk. And Jesus is like, ah, Pilate. Point of correction here, buddy. I'm not going to defend myself, but allow me to correct you. You only have authority right now to do what you're doing because I've allowed it. And what did Jesus allow? He allowed himself to be sent to a cross. And Jesus utters not an offensive word to corrupt governments, both his own religious local government, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and also the Roman court, but also Herod's court. At no point does Jesus get offensive and talk about those fools in power. As a matter of fact, throughout Jesus' life and throughout the gospel, Jesus refuses to be a part of, of the, the, the name-calling and the political mudslinging that was absolutely common and expected of a teacher of that day. Jesus refused refuses to play the game. Instead, he preaches the gospel. He preaches the truth. This side of eternity, our government officials and systems will always be, to one degree or another, corrupted by the curse of sin. Let me say that again. This side of eternity our governmental officials and systems will always be, to one degree or another, corrupted by the curse of sin. But those leaders were put in place by God for a time, for a purpose. If God alone is absolute in his sovereignty, then any power on this planet is only in place because God allowed them to come to power and established them in it. In my notes, at the end of that statement, it says in capital, bolded letters, this is an uncomfortable thought. You are probably uncomfortable and some of you unhappy with me at this moment. I'm uncomfortable and unhappy with me too. Get in line. I didn't write it. It says what it says. Like it or not, though, citizens are to be subject to the authorities and laws of the land in which they live. This is a truism. We understand this to be true. And Paul uses a specific word here as he talks about being subject. Paul says, let everyone be subject to governing authorities. This is not a passive word. What Paul is saying here is not just to say, it is what it is, you just got to kind of deal with it. It is actually a, a word that carries intent. The word that, that Paul uses here is upotasso. Upotasso. The root word is tasso. It, it means to arrange or to position or to set in order in a specific station. To, to place in order. And the prefix, upo, means under. To, to put themselves in the proper place underneath the authority. The word 
It's often translated to submit. To come into line. Now, Paul, let's be clear. Paul is not talking about a Christian nation. Paul is not talking about Christian leaders. Paul is talking about a government that is anything at this point but friendly to Christians. At the time of the writing of Romans, it is believed that the emperor at the time was the emperor Claudius. But you know what Claudius is? You can look this up and find it. You know what Claudius' opinion of Christians were? It, he, he had such a negative opinion of them and saw them as such rebel rousers that he, quote, expelled them from Rome because of one Christos. He expelled the Jews from Rome because of the conflict over Christ. This would be, when it says Jews in this case, in, in the historical text, it's not just Hebrews. It is people that are sects of the Jewish religion. That's Christians as well. So Paul is talking about this Claudius who has displaced thousands and thousands of Christians who is no friend to them. Well, you might say to them, well, it's coming to the end of Claudius's rule and Christians were going to be let back in. You know who followed Claudius? Nero. If you didn't know, Nero, Nero was, like, he didn't kick Christians out. That would, that would get rid of his lighting source. Because you know what Nero did? He took Christians, he strung them up on poles, and lit them on fire. It didn't get any better for a long time. These are the leaders that Paul is looking to and saying, hey, listen, you've got to find a way to be subject to these people that God has established in their authority. Throughout the Bible, the people of God have faced the unenviable task of submitting to godless governments that make most modern politicians and political institutions look absolutely divine and angelic. But according to Paul, it is our responsibility as followers of Christ to humbly submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. And not just that, but willful rebellion against the authorities that God has ordained is rebellion against the God who put them in power. Verse 2, Paul says, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. The expositor's Bible commentary says this, while Christians have their citizenship in heaven, they are not, on that account, excused from responsibility to acknowledge the state as possessing authority from God to govern them. All governing authorities are established by God, and we are to submit ourselves appropriately to them. Why? Because the government has God-given purposes to serve. The God government has God-given purposes to serve. Well, what are they? The, the text tells us that, that the primary purpose of government is to protect and serve the people under their authority. And twice in verse 4, the Apostle Paul notes that governing officials are God's servants. I apologize for the Greek this week. A little bit apologize, but not really. Sorry, not sorry, I guess. But I find this interesting. Do you know what word that Paul uses in this instance when he says that these governing officials are servants of God? The word he used is diakonos. That the governing authorities are God's deacons to serve and care for people. 
It's the same word we get our deacons, our, our, our officials here in the church from. God's intent for giving people power and position over others is not personal advancement, but that they might humbly serve the needs of those around them. Which really makes sense because isn't that what we're all to do anyways? To humbly and sacrificially serve the needs of others. The government throughout history has played an important role in keeping things in order. We don't, we don't like that. I, I know that my, the inner American in me feels uncomfortable with this because we like independence. We like autonomy. We like to believe that we can do that everybody can just do their own thing at, at their own pace, at their own time, and everything will work out. But it doesn't because even in our modern economy, we look around and we see other people doing things that doesn't align with what we like. And we're like, we got to find a way to stop them. And they look at us and they say, well, we don't like that. we got to find a way to stop them. And the, the few times in the Bible where we see that people have gone and done their own thing, the, the Bible says several different cases that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know what generally surrounds that? Utter chaos and destruction. It never goes well when everybody's able to do whatever they want, whenever they want, without consequences. There are always consequences to our actions. Whether they are consequences that we suffer because someone enforces something upon us or consequences because what we do impacts those around us. Those in positions of authority are supposed to use their position and power for two purposes according to this text. One, to protect those who do right. And two, to punish those who do wrong. Admittedly, they don't always get it right. Sinner's going to sin. But, in general, throughout history, governmental institutions and our own government have served their purpose. Now, there are two motivating factors. We know that that's their purpose and they don't always meet that. But what do we do? Well, we're still supposed to find a way to submit and to act appropriately to governing officials. What are, why should we? Why should we fall into line with these governing officials and to, to find our way to, to position ourselves appropriately under them? Well, again, there are two motivating factors that should inspire us to act appropriately towards those in authority. The first we find in verse 5, and it is fear of consequences. Now, I love and believe in good education. Y'all know me, I'm, I'm about that school life, and I would go back again. I enjoy that environment. But I have never been a fan of ye old school of hard knocks. I, I'm not a big fan of, of learning through the difficulty of, of punishment, uh, of, of failure, the difficulty of, of, of consequences. No sane person enjoys punishment. Whether it be the pain of a hand to the backside the discomfort of, of hearing a, the disappointment in the voice of a parent or a mentor, or some other consequence. consequences, negative consequences, are by nature designed to be uncomfortable and unfortunate realities that reasonable people seek to avoid, right? We don't, we don't want that. We find a way to avoid it, and ideally we would learn without the negative consequences being enforced upon us. 
Paul actually warns about this twice, that there are consequences and we need to fear them and realize that governing officials have the ability and the authority to punish. He talks specifically in verse 4 about the holding of the sword. He says, for one in authority is, quote, God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. In Paul's time, certain regional rulers were provided the power known as weus gladi. Literally translated, the right of the sword. These rulers were given the power to pronounce sentence on those who violated the law or disturbed the peace without appealing to a higher authority. This right went all the way to the death penalty. They literally had the sword. If they felt that you, you had offended the law too far, that they could, they could sentence you to death and they could take your life. Fear of the proverbial sword is a solid motivator, or at least it should be. Fear of consequences is a means that God uses to motivate us, to keep us on the proverbial straight and narrow, and to inspire us to continue to try to do right. So the first thing that Paul says, hey, the government, we should seek to stay in line and do what we're supposed to do. Why? Because of fear of consequences. Consequences stink. Ain't nobody wants that. But then he gives a second one, and the second one comes at the end of verse 5, and that is to quiet our consciences. It's very at the very end. He says that therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not all, only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. It's not that we. It's not just that we we do this, that we submit to governing authorities, and that we find a way to live in line because we're afraid of consciences to, to avoid doing what's wrong or receiving what is wrong, but because it's what is right. We have to quiet the proverbial cricket. I had an epiphany a few years ago. I was laying in bed, and, and Robin and I were, were trying to go to sleep, and I kept hearing this noise emanating from somewhere downstairs. So I walk downstairs, and as soon as, of course, as soon as I get downstairs, the noise stops. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go back to bed. And I go back upstairs, and I lay down, and no sooner does my head hit the pillow than I hear this noise again. And, and from where it's coming, it's coming down from where our furnace is. And, and I'm assuming that something's just wrong in the furnace. Well, I'm a paranoid individual, so I assume that our house is going to blow up. And I need to go figure out what this sound is. So I go downstairs, and as soon as I, my, my foot hits the steps again, it stops. But I'm going to find out this time. I'm determined. So I sit downstairs in the dark of night in a chair, leaning forward, just listening intently with all of my strength, trying to hear what's going on. Sure enough, after about 15 minutes of sitting there, I start to hear the squeaking again. Like, what in the world is that? So I get up to go around the corner to try to figure out what it is, but it stops again. But I realize as I round the corner that it's not coming from where the furnace is, but it's actually coming from the garage. But I can still hear it upstairs, and I can't sleep, so it's got to stop. So I walk into the garage, and I get out of chair, and I sit in the dark in the garage. And I wait for another 15 minutes, and I begin hearing the squeaking, and I realize that it is a cricket. A reasonable human being would say, just let it go and go to sleep. I am not a reasonable human being. So I say amen. 
So I turn on the lights, and I know approximately where it's coming from, and I begin throwing everything I can off of the garage floor. And before long, I've cleared the space, and I find what must be the king of the crickets. He is ginormous, and he's looking straight at me. So very slowly, I reach over next to me, and I grab JJ's little league bat. And I beat the snot out of that cricket. It's bang, 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 bang. And Robin comes down. She's like, Jeremy, what are you doing? It's like I had to quiet the cricket. So here's the epiphany. Have you ever seen the movie Pinocchio? You know what, you know what Pinocchio's cr- conscience is? It's a cricket. And you will do whatever you've got to do to shut that cricket up. That should be a motivator for us. We should be seeking to do a right thing so that the Holy Spirit isn't chirping in our ears, letting us know that, hey, you just, and we, we, we should not want to seek to, to learn how to ignore the voice of the Spirit in our ears. We should seek to respond to it in appropriate ways. Paul says we've got to keep that cricket quiet. Do what is right. Now, Inevitably, we get to this point, and even as I was thinking about this sermon, I'm like, well, what, what do we do with this? Because surely you thought when I said it, well, it is intended that the government do these two things, that they serve and they protect the people. And it's assumed within that that the government would use their authority in appropriate ways. I did give the brief caveat that sinners were going to sin and our governments were going to be to some degree throughout all of history corrupted by the reality of sin. I did do that. But what happens when the government goes completely AWOL? What do we do then? Well, you know what? The Bible doesn't leave us without examples. And the Bible still gives us the instruction that we are to submit. And we need to recognize something. That the failure of one servant to live properly according to the word of God does not excuse another from their responsibility to do so. Translation. Our governing officials' failure to do what they are supposed to do in the way that they're supposed to do it does not then excuse us to respond in kind and to lash out or to rebel in inappropriate ways. We need to understand this as well, that submission is not always synonymous with obedience. Often we have to live in the tension of needing to submit to sinful leaders while finding a way to stand firm in our faith. And sometimes obedience to Christ and submission to authorities won't always work out in our favor, but it is possible. Where do we see that? Let's think there, there are at least three examples, four if we include Jesus, that I can think of where people had to submit to sinful governments while standing firm in their faith. The first four come to us in the persons of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. In each case, we have a king who stands up and makes an edict, makes a declaration, makes a law that puts them, pits these believers against what they, the law of God and the law of the land. So what do they do? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as the sound plays and everybody bows down to worship the idol to the king, they refuse to kneel. They, they are conscientious objectors. They refuse to follow the law. 
So you might say to me, well, how did they submit? Well, they remember what it says that the governing officials do not in vain hold the sword. What do they do? They submit to the sword. They stand firm in their convictions, fully ready and willing to suffer the consequences. Now, we know the end of the story, so we look at this and we're like, well, it worked out for them. God protected them. But look at their words. Go back when you have time and look in Daniel chapter 3, 16 through 23, and look at what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to the king. They're standing before the king, and the king's like, hey, what's wrong with you fools? Don't you know that I can throw you into this furnace? And they say, look, king, we've got to respect God, and we understand that you could throw us into this furnace, and we believe that God can save us. But even if he does not, we will not bow. They objected, they respectfully abstained, and they willingly stepped into suffer the consequences. The same thing is true with the Daniel, king says, hey, look, for 30 days, he gets duped into making this declaration. For 30 days, you got to pray to no one other than the king. And Daniel, what's the first thing that Daniel does? He goes home, flips his windows open wide, and prays to God. And the officials say, oh, Daniel's violated the law. Law can't be changed, king. You've got to throw him in the lion's den. And what does Daniel, does Daniel protest and say, no, 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 this is unfair, this is unjust, I'm just worshiping my God, I've got to, no, nope. he says, all right, that's fine. You've got to do what you've got to do, and God is able to save me. Throws him in, and he does live. But you know what? Daniel didn't know the end of the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel didn't know that he was going to come out at the end. We often see these pictures, and Daniel is, is like all boldly looking at the lion. I don't think that's at all how it went. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego boldly and defiantly going to the fire. Listen, 